Revelation chapter 7 is where we were. Revelation chapter 7. Just before, I'll try to reorient us here as um, quickly and concisely as I can. Just before the opening of the seventh seal, there's this interlude in Revelation 7. The interlude serves the purpose of answering the question that was evoked by the terror of God's wrath on the whole earth at the end of chapter 6. Let me back up just a little bit and read chapter 6 beginning at verse 12 to you. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake quake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Who can stand? Only one kind of person will stand. Only one kind of person will not be destroyed in the presence of the one who sits on the throne and by the wrath of the Lamb. John has revealed in his letters to the seven churches who these standing ones are. Those who overcome these days, the last days, by God's grace. Those who conquer by the blood of the Lamb and the word of his testimony. And a voice now in chapter 7 is going to reveal the identity of these faithful ones to John in two descriptions here that combine to solidify God's original promise of preservation to his one people from all nations. Both of these descriptions are loaded with the culmination of all the language Scripture has used to describe God's people. Chapter 7 is an interlude in the opening of the seals before the opening of the seventh for the sake of the seven churches to whom John was immediately writing as well as every church that is faithful to Jesus, that has existed and exists ever since, to assure them, to assure us that we are not going to get caught up in the compromise that would make one kindling for the day that is coming, according to chapter 6, nor in the wrath that will come on those who didn't believe. The woes inflicted on rebellious humanity by the wrath of the Lamb cannot and will not separate us from his shepherding care over us, since his seal guarantees the preservation of his people. So let's pray and we'll begin. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what your son revealed to your servant John for the sake of your church. And so, Father, now help us hear correctly. Help me speak accurately, Father, I pray that you would allow me to rightly divide your word in this sermon and preach the truth of Christ from this passage that is able to save our souls. I ask and pray these things and that you would open the ear of every person in this room to receive the truth of your word with meekness and let it have its way and let it cut that it might heal. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me read the first eight verses now. Remember, we're a couple weeks separated, so it's very hard to keep the tension here. But the question at the end of chapter 6 is comprehensive because the wrath is comprehensive. So there's a very real burden created at the end of chapter 6. This wrath is going to encompass the whole earth. Who can stand? So the opening of the seal stops and we get an answer. 
After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Right? That, that was happening at the end of six, right? Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 people from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 people from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. So, In a very specific answer to the question of 617 comes this interlude between the sixth and seventh seals. A double vision, John is given, of the protected and triumphant followers of Jesus. The interlude here has or serves two purposes. One, to reassure the church that the woes being inflicted on rebellious humanity by the wrath of the Lamb will never separate them from God's protective care. Secondly, The interlude serves to further detail this delay that there is in final judgment, which, if you remember, was the reason the martyrs were lamenting back in 610. The interlude continues to answer their question. How long? Who can stand? Right? The interlude uh, continues to do this. Those churches and all those who hear this book, these seven churches, everyone who hears the book of Revelation, we are experiencing this delay that evoked these Questions In the first of the two visions that interrupted the opening of the seals, John sees four angels standing at the four corners of the earth that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree in verse 1. They're uh, restraining the four winds from wreaking the havoc of 6, 12 through 17 on the earth until, so they're holding that back until another angel marks each of God's servants as his property with his seal on their foreheads in verses 2 and 3. So notice this. This is very important in understanding Revelation as a whole. The wording here in this vision takes us back to a time before the sixth seal in 6.12 and following. These verses or those verses describe the destruction of the universe by an earthquake and by falling stars. But we find here that this harm will not come to the earth, sea, or trees until after God's servants are sealed in verse 3. So keep that in mind. The order of the visions does not necessarily reflect the order of the events they display or symbolize, do they? We're learning that here. This happened before the sixth seal. The seal for the believers is the name of Christ and of God. So when these 144,000 who are sealed reappear... In Revelation 14, 1, standing with the Lamb on Mount Zion, they have His name and the name of His Father written on their foreheads. So these 144,000 servants of our God, they portray the company of the victors on whom Jesus has promised to write the name of His God and of the New Jerusalem and His own new name back in chapter 3, verse 12. Later on, in chapter 13, verse 16, we'll see the counterfeit, the mimicking of this act of God on his people when those who worship the beast 
are compelled to receive his mark, right? And notice the difference. A seal for the people of God, a mark for the people of the beast. Ownership on their right hands, the ownership of the beast on their right hands or their foreheads. The difference there in terminology is significant, beloved. The word seal implies security under the protective authority of Almighty God. The mark of the beast makes no such guarantee, does it? It's just a mark. And notice, beloved, as we now know from chapter 6, this seal does not mean, however, that God is promising uh, His servants they won't endure physical suffering. That's not what the seal means. The fact that Jesus exhorts us to remain faithful, even if it means martyrdom and suffering and persecution, is written not only throughout Revelation, but through the entire New Testament as a whole. So the seal is spiritual protection of our souls. It doesn't preclude suffering. In Deuteronomy 6, 8, the binding of God's law on the foreheads and hands of the Israelites symbolized his sovereignty over both their thoughts and their actions. The seal of the Lamb here shows that he protects his servants from being deceived by the serpent and the beast. 12, 15 through 17, 13, 11 through 18, 16, 13, and 14. So who can stand? Well, only those who have been branded, so to speak, with the Lamb's seal of ownership. And as John sees these things in a vision, we shouldn't expect this to be a literal, visible mark on the physical foreheads of believers. That's not what it is. True circumcision into the people of God is not a physical seal, but a spiritual one on the heart. Romans 2, 28 and 29. Romans 4, 11. In the same way, this seal of ownership that marks us as God's possession, there's precedent for a seal in the New Testament, is the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. So then, who are these 144,000 who receive God's seal? They're described as belonging to the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel, 12,000 from each tribe. So it's normally, or I think, widely believed that this group represents an ethnic Jewish remnant because of one's interpretation of Revelation 4.1 that is converted to faith in Jesus the Messiah by the rapture of the church prior to the seven-year tribulation. In this view, Gentile believers will not go through the tribulation, so only the faithful Israelites need this protective seal because they're still stuck in the tribulation. This is an extremely appealing view since it means the church won't suffer the horrors of this tribulation. The problem with that, I wish it was the case, is that it severely conflicts with the text of Revelation itself. First of all, beloved, these are important things. I'm asking you to consider these things. I know there are major differences here, and that's all right. But I'm asking you to let the text do some work. All right? First of all, this list of the 12 tribes is not random. In fact, it doesn't match any of the other lists, any of the ways the 12 tribes were listed in the Old Testament. So if we were taking this list to be uh, the 12 sons of Jacob specifically, which is normally what we would think, it's very strange then the way this list reads. Manasseh is on this list. Manasseh was not Jacob's son. Manasseh was his grandson. And Dan, who was Jacob's son, is not on this list at all. There's another reason for that. We'll get to it. But if we associate this with, well, it's the 12 tribes who inherited the promised land, we're going to face even more problems and inconsistencies. Why is Joseph here along with his son Manasseh, but Ephraim is missing? 
And why is Levi here? Since that tribe did not receive an apportioned territory in the land. Because the Lord was the tribe of Levi's inheritance. Secondly, the sealing of this group of 144,000 is identical to the promise Jesus made to all those who overcome from every race in the letter to Philadelphia in chapter 3, verse 12. Thirdly, later in John's vision of the Lamb's army of Zion in 14, 3 and 4, the 144,000 are those there purchased from the earth as the first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And it was by the Lamb's blood that He also purchased individuals from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation back in chapter 5, verse 9. Here, in just a few moments in verse 9, this is the ethnic composition of the great multitude that John will see immediately after hearing, very important for the symmetry of the visions, Here in verse 9, this is every tribe, tongue, people, and nation is the ethnic composition of the great multitude that John will see immediately after hearing the census of the 12 tribes of God's sealed servants. The fact that these believers are called the first fruits suggests that these 144,000 are a first installment of a larger harvest when later in chapter 14, verses 14 through 20, the angels are sent out to harvest the earth. So, the 144,000 don't symbolize, I believe, belated believers from only one single ethnic group, the Jews, but the faithful martyrs from all of God's people who by their deaths are gathered into God's presence first or before the rest. A fourth reason to consider that this group is not simply a belated group of believing ethnic Jews in the tribulation. The 144,000 are portrayed later in 14.4, this same group, as a holy army composed exclusively of men who have not been defiled with women. That's a symbol there of the church's purity, and in no way is implying that only single celibate male servants of God receive his seal of protection. In other words, we need a better way, I think, to think through this list that comes first from its immediate context in Revelation before we just take the words and read into them the baggage we automatically approach this text with, beloved. Identifying these 144,000 as ethnic Jews during exclusively uh, an end-time tribulation, as I said, depends on 4-1, meaning that the rapture of the church has taken place, and in 4-1 anyway, we don't have any textual evidence for that at all. In Dennis Johnson's commentary on Revelation, which has been a foundational, a tremendous help to me, particularly in some of these more confusing sections. He offers Christopher Smith's very clear and persuasive explanation of the selection and order of the tribes listed here in Revelation 7. Why are these the names? Why is this the list? And it shows that the 12 tribes in... or I, uh, First of all, I would agree that this is biblically sound, but the differences between this list and the Old Testament list of Jacob's sons and Israel's tribes show that the 12 tribes in Revelation are symbolic with respect to the quantity and ethnicity of the Lamb's army. Remember chapter 1, verse 1. He is showing us things through symbols. We are called by the text to read the text in that way. The purpose of the order in this list is to, and I quote, symbolize the inclusion of the Gentile nations into this one sealed and protected people of God. So, 
The starting point for understanding this list is the first list of Jacob's 12 sons in Genesis 35, 23 to 26, that if you remember, follows immediately from the birth of the 12th son, Benjamin, and the incest of Reuben. That would lead to his loss of the firstborn son's privileges in 49, 3-4 to of Genesis, 1 Chronicles 5, 1-2. through The changes in the order from Genesis 35 explain the order in Revelation 7 in a way that connects with the theology of Revelation as a whole. Judah is promoted from fourth on the list to first. How, how recently in Revelation has the tribe of Judah been mentioned? And why was it mentioned in chapter 5? Jesus is the lion of that tribe. That tribe goes from fourth to first in verse 5. The sons of the concubines, who were slaves of Leah and Rachel, Jacob's competing wives, and were forced into service as surrogate mothers, they're promoted, their sons are promoted from the end of the line to positions three through six, above six of the sons of the wives, Rachel and Leah. The elevation of these descendants of women who were outside the covenant family signifies the inclusion of the Gentiles among the sealed servants of our God in verse 3. Dan, of course, was also replaced by Joseph's son Manasseh because the tribe of Dan led the northern kingdom into idolatrous apostasy. Judges 18.1. 1 Kings 12, 29, and 30. In Jewish literature, in fact, between the two testaments, the tribe of Dan was associated often with the Antichrist. I believe the order of tribes in Revelation 7 symbolizes the reign of Jesus from the tribe of Judah, the incorporation of outcasts into the people of God, and the exclusion of idolaters from God's covenant people. I think that's why this list reads in the order and with the names it does. And he will shield his own, seal them, from his coming wrath. I think that explanation not only makes sense of the selection and order of the tribes, but also reinforces the unity of the interlude visions we have in Revelation 7. There's a symmetry, a unity to all of them. All right, so let's keep going. Pick it up in verse 9. After this, I looked. So he's heard, just like chapter 5. He hears, then when he looks, he sees something that doesn't look like what he heard. As he did in chapter 5. Remember, he heard the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. And what did he see when he looked? A lamb standing as though he had been slain. We have symmetry between that vision and this one. He hears, and when he looks, this is what he sees. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. 
For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Again, consider what is happening here. Back in chapter 5, when John is lamenting the fact that no one can open the scroll, he's answered by the reassuring words that announce the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Right? That's what's announced. That's what he hears. Then when he looks, he sees a lamb standing as though slain. Here in chapter 7, we have the same situation. An unanswerable question by mankind in chapter 6, verse 17. The question here is not who is worthy to open the scroll. The question is who can stand in this great comprehensive wrath of God. How is it answered here in chapter 7? In the exact same order. First, it's answered by what he hears. The roster of Israel's 12 tribes. Notice the text in verse 4. John heard the number of the sealed in verse 4, just as he heard the answer to his lament back in 5, 4 and 5. And then in verses 9 through 17, when he looks, just as he looked and saw in 5, 6, he sees a vision of those who have come safely out of a tribulation as an innumerable congregation, not from a single nation, but from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues in verse 9 and in verse 14, just as the lion of the tribe of Judah proved to be the slain lamb displaying royal power through the weakness of his sacrifice in chapter 5, so the flock he protects and seals sounds like a precisely numbered, exclusively Israelite army braced for battle, but looks like a countless international crowd celebrating a victory that's already been won. Do you see the symmetry between these two visions Beloved, the Lamb won this victory for them when He was slain to purchase this multitude from the peoples of the earth to become God's treasured kingdom of priests in chapter 5, verses 5 and 9. The pure white of their robes. We've seen this. It comes from being washed in the Lamb's blood in verse 14. The blood that silences their accusers' charges forever, by the way, in chapter 12, verse 11. And their white robes also show, as we saw in chapter 6, that these... Joyful victors are the martyrs from chapter 6 whose souls John saw poured out like sacrificial blood beneath the altar back in 6, 9 through 11. Their lament, how long, was answered by God's comforting words in 6 and his gift of white robes. These lamenting martyrs who await God's justice and the victors celebrating God's salvation here in chapter 7 are the same group viewed from different perspectives, beloved. That's what we see all throughout Revelation. One ball game, different camera angles that John is giving us throughout the game. Both of these perspectives are true. Nothing less than the return of Jesus Christ at the end of all things that will bring the resurrection of the saints and the destruction of the last enemy, death, once and for all, will be able to satisfy our longing for God's justice to prevail. But between now and then, those who die in the Lord were finding out what happens to them. They do stand blessed in His presence. Here, Revelation 14, 13. 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8. 2 Corinthians 6, 9. Just as the images of the lion and the lamb in chapter 5 carried distinct and complimentary messages about Jesus and His victory. So the two images in chapter 7 enable us to see the church from distinct and complimentary perspectives. God's covenant people, dressed for battle, numbered perfectly, 
as the peoples of the world, redeemed by the Lamb, already celebrating His victory. So the difference between the 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel and the countless multi-ethnic congregation is not in their ethnicity, but in their location. The sealed and numbered army of Israel shows the faithful church militant on the earth, shielded from apostasy and from God's wrath by our union with the Lamb, bearing His name, sealed by His Spirit, signs that we are the seed of Abraham, according to Galatians. And what was that promise? The innumerable assembly of nations in verses 9 through 17 is a picture of the victorious church in heaven. Emerging triumphant from tribulation, not through a painless rapture, but through a faithful death. In chapter 12, verse 11, we'll see it again. These people have known hunger, thirst, exposure, tears, all things experienced by God's people in different kinds, in different ways, in different levels throughout the world and throughout time. But what will be released on the world in final judgment and God's just wrath on sin cannot touch those who dwell in God's sanctuary, shepherded forever by the Lamb in verses 15 through 17. That's the point of the interlude here. They are celebrating their conquering king in verse 9 with palm branches in their hands. Palm branches, of course, were a part of the ancient world's method of praise. We saw it in John 12, 13, when a crowd welcomed Jesus to Jerusalem, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And now these worshipers in white lead the heavenly assembly as we see here into a new phase, new words of praise in Revelation. This is the very first time in Revelation we hear the church singing to its sovereign Lord. So it's very fitting that this multi-ethnic assembly of purchased and purified peoples in 5979 and 714, it's fitting for them to introduce a new theme to the excellencies of God that were being celebrated in chapters 4 and 5. Look at verse 10. And crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And this praise of the church is answered then by a chorus of angels, elders, living creatures, and a doxology of seven parts, which basically replaces the earlier seven-parted praise of the Lamb with one substitution. In place of wealth, in chapter 5, verse 12, Now our God in chapter 7, verse 12, receives thanksgiving. Why? Because His creatures are responding to His saving grace, to His salvation. John has shown the eternal safety then of this multitude in verses 15 through 17. And remember, we're answering a question, who can stand? Look at these verses again. They're some of the most beautiful in all of Scripture. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's your destiny. That's what's happening to you and me when we are said and done. This imagery is drawn directly from Isaiah chapter 49, verse 10. There in Isaiah's prophecy, God is the shepherd, Yahweh, who leads his flock to springs of water, which you see that image in Psalm 23, Ezekiel 34. In Revelation, the lamb is now revealed to be their shepherd. John 10, 
1, 1 Peter 2, 25, 1 Peter 5, 4. This makes sense since the Lamb is in the center of the throne. And with the Father receives worship from all creatures everywhere. He is God. We saw that in 5, 13, and 14. In order to shelter his flock from sun and heat, our divine protector. So, he will shelter us is the point here. Who can stand? Those who are sheltered. Those who are sealed. Right? Only God can protect us from God. In order to shelter his flock from sun and heat, our divine protector will shelter them with his presence and wipe away every tear from their eyes. Remember, they were crying back in chapter 60. Remember that, the martyrs crying out. All those faithful ones who die in the Lord, including our loved ones who have gone before us, already taste the eternal joys of the new Jerusalem before the throne of God where he dwells with his people. He will guide them to springs of living water and cause them, cause us to drink from the water of life. We'll see that again in 21, 3 and 4 and in 22, verse 1. Beloved, we live in the last days of the great tribulation that began with the suffering and death of the Lamb, as Mark has revealed to us, but also with his triumphant resurrection and ascension. This was also part of that event. Chapter 7 is a picture of his victory, which is also our victory, beloved. Here we are maligned and at war as the followers of Christ on earth, but our souls in death, even if death comes by martyrdom, our souls in death are safe and in his care forever as our God drives history to its appointed consummation where there will first be terrible wrath but will give way to eternal life and joy for the redeemed in the presence of our God. For us, it is very hard to believe we are suffering as part of a tribulation. That's us. Please understand, we are the minority in the world as Christians. An Indonesian believer right now, a North Korean believer right now, a North African, Sudanese, or Nigerian believer right now says, well, yeah, I could die tonight. A Chinese believer is hiding right now. Right In Canada, it just became illegal to counsel someone out of homosexuality with the scriptures. It became illegal to proclaim from a pulpit that heterosexual marriage between one man and one woman is the only acceptable marriage. That's now illegal. There are pastors sitting in jail right now since last Sunday because of that. We just, America's great as far as the world is concerned. And so we aren't there yet, but it's going to come. In response to the sixth seal's terrifying revelation of the wrath of God that will come at the end of all things, a desperate question was asked. Who can stand? Right? Again, you read chapter 6, surely everyone's going to be caught up in that wrath. Regardless of who they are, it's so expansive. Who can escape that? He tells you, the Lamb's flock is assured that nothing in the present or in the future will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, including His coming wrath. There's a reason the same instructions were given to every church of the seven, even though only in one or two was actual physical suffering, what they were suffering. That's not the only kind of suffering. That isn't the only time that we could compromise. When Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended back to heaven, the world cracked, beloved. The end began. 
We have been in the last days, as the New Testament teaches us, since that day. And tribulation wavers throughout the world. Sometimes it's more intense here. Sometimes it's more intense there. But it's all over. The, sometimes it's a third. Sometimes it's a fourth. John is talking at the end of chapter 6 about the whole thing. The great day. There's not another great day coming after the great day. This is the great day at the end of 6. All those sealed as God's own possession with the seal of His name by the Holy Spirit are now and will be secured in the future. From the burning wrath to come. You and I have not been destined to wrath, beloved, but to salvation. They are the people of his covenant, portrayed as 12 complete tribes of Israel. The language of God's people now applied. But now that God's lamb has conquered through his death, God's covenant is as he originally promised Abraham. It encompasses all nations, tribes, people, and tongues, which was the promised Design and result of the covenant. Too many to count in Revelation 7, 9 is just as God promised Abraham, a great multitude no one could number way back in Genesis 32, 12. It's right here. Here we are. There they are in Revelation 7. This is the promise fulfilled. This is what God said it was going to be. The great multitude in verse 9 is the fulfillment of that promise and shows us how and why Revelation continues to refer to all Christians in the world as the true Israel of God, as Paul called them in Galatians 6, by virtue of their union with Abraham's seed, who is Jesus Christ, the risen Lamb. The Israel of God, secured by God, is a multi-ethnic multitude, dressed in white robes, drenched in the Lamb's blood, who praise Him for His salvation forever. So the woes inflicted on rebellious humanity by the wrath of the Lamb cannot and will not separate us from His shepherding care over us in this life or in the next, since His seal guarantees the preservation of His people. So, my hope tonight for the last days, whether I'm right or wrong about where I place them, is not in my ability to remain faithful. This is not the believer's hope. My hope is that Jesus Christ will never stop being faithful to me. And He's promised me that He won't. I don't know what will come in our time. I don't. I don't know what types of suffering the days of great tribulation has in store for us. I don't, but I know I'm sealed. I know I'm sealed as his own, and I cannot, will not be lost. See, God is making us wrath-proof and fire-proof so that we would go proclaim his name no matter what it would cost us. I think sometimes we're just hoping to escape before everything gets really bad. That's just not how the Bible reads. It's, it's just not. We're, we're destined not to go through wrath. We're not destined to miss tribulation. It, it, it's so part and parcel of our lives on the earth as believers that Peter would say, don't be surprised when this stuff happens to you. See, see how much more streamlined the word of God and the promise to his people becomes when we read the scriptures this way. God sees through all the mess of this world. 
all the suffering, all the trial, all the sin. He sees all the way down to the core of who I am. And there, beloved, underneath the muck and the mire is a seal embedded on my soul by the Holy Spirit of God written in blood and nothing can erase it. Nothing. He isn't going to let go of me. And He isn't going to let go of you. Beloved, the world can't touch us. It can't touch us. All it can do is kill us. That's all it can do. So make known the victory of Jesus. Put the world on notice who its king is. Tell them that he reigns. Tell them that we will give an account. Tell them that he's coming. Tell them that he's coming. Nothing can hold him back. He's already won. He's already won. That's why he makes the promises. Because it's done. They need to know this. Everybody needs to know this. That's why we're here. Make known the victory of Jesus in the gospel and let his grace wash over you in waves, beloved. In waves. All that he has promised is yours. Yours. One day this life will be over. All the pain, all the sorrow, and maybe even all the suffering we'll go through for the name of Christ. One day it will end, no matter who's right about how the pieces play out. Again, we all agree on the fact that Jesus reigns and will reign forever. That's the most important thing. We're one in that. We're meant to go through this stuff together. We're meant to endure together. We're meant to grow up into maturity in Christ together in the book of Ephesians. We we don't have any identity, but the identity we've been given in Christ. Everything else has been done away with. We are new creation in the old creation right now. Of course we don't feel like it. Of course it doesn't look like it. It never has looked like God is winning. Ever. But the universe knows. The enemy knows. Annas and Caiaphas know. Beloved, you're safe. Your preservation is promised. And because of the seal, so is your faithfulness. All right, the prodigal son was a son even when he had his face in pig slop. So trust the Father, run the race, don't give up, and one day you and I, born hours apart, miles apart, from different places and different families and different stories, one day every single one of us is going to gather around the Lamb, no matter how it all shakes out, and be at peace forever, and share our stories and rejoice in the beauty of the Lamb. That cannot be taken away from any of you who believe. All right, would you stand, please? I hope that word gives you comfort tonight in the midst of all the details, right? I hope it gives you grace. Linda's going to play. The words will be on the screen for you. I'm going to be down front if I can help you pray in any way, if I can help encourage your heart or point you towards Christ. If you don't belong to Him, That could be the case here. Sure it could. Maybe you know you've never bowed your heart in allegiance to this Christ. Then come. Come, be saved. Repent. Everything we've read tonight is true. And you're accountable to Him, whether you want to be or not. So come, and He will receive you and not turn you away. Nor will He turn away His bruised sheep who are bleeding for comfort, beloved. Not ever. Amen.